Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. Uh, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and asked him, Why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new patch will pull away from the old cloth, and the worst tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost as well as the skins. No new wine is put into fresh wineskins. Father, we thank you for your word. You have chosen to reveal yourself to us so that we can know you and love you and adore you and sing songs about you and and get to the end of our life and say at the end of the ages all along Jesus has led the way and you've made that possible because you have made yourself known you've preserved your word for thousands of years through all kinds of circumstances so that we have it in our language so that we can hear and believe and And understand the gospel. And so we pray that this time would be good for us today. Good for your people. That it would build us up. It would call us to repentance. It would encourage our weary souls. It would give us courage to walk by faith and not by sight. And maybe, maybe for someone here, it might bring life where there is death. Do all these things by the power of your spirit through your word for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark, Jesus' fame has been growing. He is amazing people. They are saying things like, we've never seen anything like this before. I got a bunch of kids in my house, so they're not going to bother me. So you can let her rip. Um, things have been, they've been saying things like, we've never seen anything like this before through miracles and healings and teaching and casting out demons, touching lepers, forgiving people of sins, healing paralytics, eating meals with tax collectors and sinners, Jesus is breaking all the molds. And in this section, we are smack dab in the middle of a section where Jesus' conflict with the religious leaders of his day is beginning to reveal itself and grow in intensity. In the first story, when Jesus, in in Mark chapter 2, first story, Mark 2, where Jesus forgave the paralytic before healing him, the religious leaders only uh, thought some negative things about him. They didn't say it, they thought it. And if you remember, Jesus read their thoughts. He can because he's God. And he called them to account. That they had legitimate objections. How can Jesus forgive this man's sins? Only God can forgive sins. That's a legitimate objection if Jesus weren't God. But because he was God, and that's what he's declaring in that story, I am God, showing that I'm God, then their objections have no basis. Last week, the scribes whispered to some people, why is he eating with these sinners, these tax collectors and sinful people? And Jesus overheard them and answered their objections. This week, people, not religious leaders, just some people come up and ask a question about fasting. So now it's a direct confrontation. They're not thinking it. They're not whispering to each other. Now they're asking him this objection. And where we're headed is by the end of verse 6 in chapter 3, they're ready to kill him going to happen that fast they don't get the opportunity because it happens on God's timing but that's how quick the the objections turn into rebellion today he simply asked this question 
The disciples of John fast. The disciples of the Pharisees fast. Why don't your disciples fast? Almost as if they're sitting back just trying to find something. There's something off about this guy. This is different, new, strange. What, what can we see that's off? Let's ask about it. The disciples of John, of course, refer to John the baptizer, forerunner of Jesus. We know two of John's disciples left John and began to follow Jesus. But evidently, he had others who remained. We'll see them later in the Gospels when they are sent by John to ask Jesus when John was in prison before Jesus dies. Are you really the one? So some of those disciples are still following John at that time. You see John's disciples all the way in Acts 19 when Paul comes across some guys near Ephesus who are still following John's call to repent and return to the Lord and they hadn't received the spirit of transformation in the Gospel yet. And so apparently they practiced fasting in a way that people knew they were fasting. The Pharisees and, the, and their disciples, now the Pharisees, we, which means holy ones, are separated ones. They're more well known. They were a group of men who arose, most people think, about 200 years earlier during the time of the Maccabean Revolt. They were the most organized and widespread of the various Jewish religious sects, numbering about 6,000 men about 1% of the population in the first century. And as far as beliefs go, Jesus was closest to the Pharisees than any other Jewish sect or group of people, uh, like the Sadducees, the Zealots, the Essenes, or the Herodians. Pharisees believed in the sovereignty of God coupled with human accountability. They believed in the resurrection of the dead, angels and demons. Those other groups did not believe in those things. And they were the most adaptable group. They're the only Jewish group of religious people who survived Rome destroying the Jerusalem temple in 70 AD. They were most known for their devotion to the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And they had developed written and oral traditions that were practiced with extreme precision to show how much they loved God through how much they loved the Torah. They were considered the successors of Moses, and they had complete disdain for anyone who didn't know or follow the Old Testament law. We know them primarily because Jesus revealed them to be hypocritical, and we see them as enemies of Jesus. But we don't lose sight of the fact that they were highly respected in the first century by the rest of the Jews. If anyone obeyed the law, it was a Pharisee. And it was scandalous for Jesus to question them and confront their system of law-keeping. Now, there was only one prescribed fast in Judaism, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the day when the sins of the nation would be atoned for. You can read about that in Leviticus 16. That was a 24-hour fast. But the Pharisees had developed a tradition of also fasting on Mondays and Thursdays. And the way the Pharisees fasted is they would walk around very sad, their clothes disheveled, miserable looking, to make sure everyone knows how miserable they were in their fast so that they would think how holy they are in their devotion to the Lord. And John's disciples fast, the disciples of the Pharisees fast. Why not your disciples, Jesus? Almost as if they were saying, if you want to be taken seriously, like we take these guys seriously, then fasting needs to be part of your program. And Jesus' response is breathtaking. Verse 19, the wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast, but the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. Now before we get into what he said, realize 
the question and answer is really not about fasting. Fasting is something Jesus had already done for 40 days in the wilderness. Fasting was said by Jesus in Matthew 6, when you fast, uh, verses 16 through 18, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, the Pharisees, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward in full, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward, reward you. In other places, it's an expected practice of his disciples. So we could spend a lot of time talking about fasting, how we fast, uh, how, the importance of fasting in the Christian life. It's always been a part of God's people. It's continued to be a part of God's people and their devotion to God. So it wasn't, should we fast or shouldn't we fast? It, it was, well, everyone fasts, but make sure you fast in the right way, not hypocritically and not drawing attention to yourself. But that's not what Jesus is dealing with in this passage. The expectation of fasting among the first century Jews was that you fasted to show your devotion, your piety, essentially your misery. And Jesus had already corrected that in that passage in Matthew 6. You don't fast to show people how spiritual you are. But Jesus is answering a different question by saying, now is not the time to fast. Why? Because he, the bridegroom, is present, and as long as he is present, you don't fast. So you have to understand first century Jewish weddings to understand why it's significant for him to call himself the bridegroom and why the bridegroom has anything to do with fasting. A first century Jewish wedding was nothing like what we do for weddings today. For a never before married couple, it was a seven day party where the bride and groom were expected to provide food and drink for all their guests. Nowadays you get married and you go off on a honeymoon for seven days. In the first century Jewish culture, you had your honeymoon there in the town, and everyone was invited, and you paid for everything. I got six kids. I am glad we don't do that. There'd be a lot of eloping in my house. It was a tremendous celebration, so much so that even the Pharisees had laws written that would allow them to attend a seven-day wedding and not have to follow all their little rules during that time. They didn't have to fast on Monday and Thursday if they're at a wedding celebration. Whole small towns or parts of larger towns would kind of shut down to celebrate these two people coming together to make this new family. And for someone to be at that kind of party that the entire culture is celebrating and say, well, I'm fasting right now, that would be ludicrous. You just wouldn't do that. And what's astonishing about what Jesus is saying is this. He's clearly identifying himself as the bridegroom. I'm the bridegroom. I'm here. This is a party. This is not time to fast. Why that's astonishing is because nowhere in the Old Testament is the Messiah identified as the bridegroom. Just a few passages. Isaiah 54, verses 5 through 8. For your maker is your husband, our bridegroom. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Isaiah 62, verses 4 and 5. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her, and your land married, 
For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And then one more, Hosea 2, verses 19 and 20. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. In the Old Testament, the bridegroom is God. Again, Jesus is, it's, it's hard for us to see because we're not first century Jewish people. But Jesus is emphatically saying, the God of the Old Testament, I am he. And this, this is why they eventually hated him and killed him. Which the, he deserved to die for blasphemy if he wasn't truly God. But we know that he was. Just like in Mark chapter 2, uh, the verses 1 through 12, the story of the paralytic, where Jesus associates himself with the Son of Man from Daniel 7, a very strong declaration of his deity, and then proves he's God, doing something only God can do, healing a man of his sins. Well, how do you know he uh, forgave him of his sins? How do you know he forgave him of his sins? Well, Jesus then healed the paralytic. If he can do what seemingly is harder to do, then certainly he can do what is seemingly easier to do. Forgive him of his sins. Only God forgives someone of his sins. Yes, I am he. And now in equally strong language, he's saying, the bridegroom of the Old Testament, you know that's God, I'm that guy. And I am with you. Emphatic declaration of his deity. And because he's here, this is a wedding feast. And we don't fast or mourn because the wedding feast is going on. Now there will be a time for fasting and mourning when the bridegroom is taken away, he says. Very emphatic and powerful language used in the original language of the New Testament. Many scholars believe Jesus, again, is referring to his soon crucifixion and execution. Even if he wasn't, it would be the immediate place the minds and hearts of the original hearers would go, as well as us ourselves. Those three days waiting while Jesus was in the tomb were filled with sadness and mourning and fasting. But that would end because the bridegroom would return and live and purchase his bride to live with him forever. You see, is the bridegroom with us now? Yes. Jesus is with us now. His, his resurrected, glorified body, yes, is in, is in heaven. But he said before he ascended into heaven, Lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. So Jesus remains with us because the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of God, lives inside of his people. So we still live in the age of the bridegroom being with his people. And it's, it's not exactly everything it's going to be one day. It's, it's still messed up and, 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 and it's still kind of a, a mirror dimly lit, Paul would say, because of the presence of sin in us and the presence of sin in our world. But it doesn't take away from the reality. The bridegroom is here with us. When we become alive in Christ, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit comes to live in us and we become the temple of God. We live with the bridegroom in us and so the joy that comes from being with the bridegroom is here. Even when we fast now, our fasting isn't to prove how miserable or holy we can be. The purpose of our fasting is to intensify our love of the bridegroom, Jesus. To intensify our joy and worship and obedience to him. And then, of course, one day the bridegroom will return and we'll be in that everlasting kingdom and it will be one big feast and celebration like never before but he's here and so because he is here our joy should be here as well 
There's a passage in John 16 that I think helps balance this out for us. John 16, verse 16 through 22. You can, you can turn there, flip over there if you want to. John 16, verse 16 through 22. Jesus is telling his disciples this is the night of his arrest. He's just hours away from uh, his illegal trial and, and then his crucifixion. He says in John 16, beginning in verse 16, A little while, and you will see me no longer. <clears throat> and again a little while, and you will see me. So some of the disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while you will not see me, and again a little while you will see me, because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? Even though he had told them three times about his death, crucifixion, resurrection, they just had no concept of it, just did not get it. We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is that what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, A little while you will not see me, and again a little while you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for a joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. No one will take your joy from you. John 16 occurs on the night he's arrested. He's speaking to his closest followers about his impending death. This is about to happen, and, and you're, he says, the sorrow you feel is real because you won't see me, and you're going to be afraid when I'm in the grave. But that will turn to joy, and this joy will be so much a part of who you are, no one can take it away from you. Jesus knows these guys are going to be persecuted, are going to be arrested, and are going to be killed because they are followers of Jesus. But not even those things can take away the joy of the presence of the bridegroom with us. Why? Because our joy is grounded and flows from the bridegroom, and no one can separate us from him. No one. Nothing. Joy is one of the essential qualities that mark followers of Jesus. It's listed with the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We have joy because our God is joyful. And as a follower of Jesus, His life is in us. And we take on some of His attributes, included, including those listed here. And joy is a part of that. And since this is a work of the Holy Spirit, and it's a work that will be finished and completed in us, if you are in Christ and Christ is in you, you will become a more and more joyful person. You will. He who began a good work in you will finish it. And this is part of what his work looks like. Joy. It's going to be in you, and it's going to grow and grow and grow the, the more you walk with Jesus. Well, we, we try to define joy in a way that maybe doesn't, it doesn't sound as amazing as it should sound. Well, you know, joy, happy, yeah, we get happy, yay, happy, clappy, smiles, we feel good, but joy is this deep, abiding presence of God. It's very somber, it just kind of, you know, it's not really exuberant, it's just kind of this peace that we have, no matter what we face in life. Like, we, we kind of tone down the joy, because it can't be that good. We can't be happy, clappy all the time. It's really sophisticated, because we're very intellectual. Let's not think of joy in terms that cause us to get carried away. I mean, we're, we're Protestants, right? We don't get carried away by anything. That's LSU football. 
Well, in Proverbs 8, you have a passage about wisdom. And in this passage, wisdom is being personified in a way that makes it clear that it's a reference to Jesus and His Father during creation. We know Jesus is co-eternal with God the Father and God the Spirit. We know that from John 1 that Jesus was with God in the beginning and nothing was made that wasn't made through Him, Jesus. Jesus is the agent of creation. Jesus is also the agent of recreation. And Proverbs 8 is looking back into that time period during creation and says this in Proverbs 8, 27. When He established the heavens, I, Jesus, was there. When He drew a circle in the face of the deep, when He made, the firm, made firm the skies above, when He established the fountains of the deep, when He assigned to the sea its limits so that waters might not transgress His command, when He marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside Him like a master workman, and I was daily His delight rejoicing before Him always, rejoicing in His inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. I was beside Him like a master workman. I was daily His delight, rejoicing before Him always, rejoicing in His inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. The word there for delight in the Old Testament literally means to frolic, to jump up and down and clap your hands. This passage speaks of Jesus, the Son of God, experiencing this delight daily during the creation of all things, especially the creation of mankind. Well, that's not very dignified. But it's joy. And joy isn't supposed to be dignified. It's supposed to be exuberant. David dancing before the Lord to the disdain of his first wife. Ugh. Who can be so excited about the Lord like that? Zephaniah 3.17 The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. This is how our Father feels about us, His children. It's what it's like to be a dad and a husband with your wife and kids. We experience small examples of this. And when we get it right, there's this frolicking, this exuberance, this silliness, this thrill that comes from being with your family. You laugh, you play, you sing crazy songs, you wrestle, you tickle, you talk in crazy voices, you chase each other. Yesterday was a day I got to do all those things. I didn't have to do uh, any kind of work yesterday uh, for most of the day. It was the first half of the day before I had to leave. But it was just a day to, to enjoy being with Jennifer and, and the kids. And uh, didn't have to work. Uh, nothing was so broken at the house, I had to fix it. I mean, there's always something broken, but I didn't have to fix it right then. And man, we got in a school parking lot, and we got on our bikes, and we rode, and we laughed. And Tim, uh, my almost six-year-old, wanted to play ta tag on bikes. And I'm thinking, this is, this is not going to work. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill myself. Sure enough, he cuts right in front of me, and my tire hits his tire, and I go down. First, first bike rack in probably 30 years. Thankfully, I survived. We go back, and, and my 16-year-old had five, four or five friends over the night before, so we had a room full of mattresses and sleeping bags, and so we just rolled and jumped and turned them into trampolines and laughed and tackled each other and did flips and all kinds of crazy stuff. It was awesome. Like, then I had to go meet with some guys in the church, and my kids were not happy about that. Like, Dad, why are you leaving to go disciple people? You're right. I shouldn't be leaving to go disciple people. But that time I had with them was just exuberant. And that's nothing close to how our Father in Heaven feels about us. It just gives us a taste of how He delights and has this exuberant joy that He wants us to experience with Him. This is why the Gospel means good news, not dour news, somber news, 
sucking on a sour pickle news. It's good news, joyful news. It's good to be enjoyed and be frolicked in with our Father. Now, this joy is not absence of sorrow. And verse 20 alludes to that. And even the passage in John 16, it's a joy mixed with sorrow. There was pain when Jesus was crucified that turned to joy. There's pain in childbearing, so I hear. But it turns to joy. Hebrews 12, 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We have this crazy notion that is taught even by some churches in our nation that if you believe enough and work hard enough and are good enough at being a Christian, somehow you can have a life free from pain, sickness, trials, and troubles. You can be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous all the time. As though the goal of Christianity is to, to live above the suffering and sorrow of this world if we have enough faith or give enough money or whatever. That we should live disassociated. That's not the goal of Christianity. The goal of Christianity is we're right in the mess, the mess with everybody else with this transcendent, exuberant joy that we can actually get carried away with if we really understand it. You see, in the health, wealth, and prosperity version of Christianity, the opposite of joy is sadness or sorrow. You know, if you're, if you're sad or sorrowful about stuff in life, then something's wrong with your Christianity. Oh, there's stuff in this world that we should be sad about. We should have sorrow about. We should grieve about because this world stinks. People are suffering and hurting. There's heartbreak in our, in our world. I was, I'm a chaplain to a nursing home. A lot of you know that. One of my jobs, a marketplace ministry, and, and, and Friday I got to go back in the facility for the first time since COVID. And um, I tell you, it was heartbreaking. These, these employees, what they've had to do for the last 12 months to take care of these residents is just, a, it's like I was walking in a, a war zone. The PTSD symptoms people are having. Um, one was telling me about uh, dementia patients who did not understand, don't understand, can't understand COVID. Families abandoned them as far as all, all they know. And their therapist, their, their therapy was, wasn't doing their normal speech or physical stuff. It was just holding dementia patients and crying with them and letting them know it's going to be okay. Day after day after day. The weight these people have carried to not just be their normal dietitians, nutritionists, nurses, and CNAs and so forth, but to also be their family, to also be their counselors, their pastors. This facility had 17 church services and Bible studies a week for their residents, and it went down to zero. And they've asked me, I'm the only pastor to let in right now, to come in and start these church services back this week. And I don't have time for that, but I, I couldn't say no. I'm like, okay, I have to, because this is... This is hard. And it's just one facility in one town. Multiply that by all the facilities and all that's going on in the healthcare world. Like, I, we were in tears, like, the whole time. I could have been there 20 hours listening to people, and it would have been enough time. Heartbreaking. And the rest of the day, just kind of grieving at what... We, don't, we haven't even begun to process what this last year is like for us and what we've lost and what we've... Had to, had to do to, to live life. It's heartbreaking. So the opposite of joy is not sadness or sorrow. The opposite of joy is hopelessness. Romans 5, 3 through 5, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. 
And hope does not put us to shame because God's love's been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. As followers of Jesus, we live a life of joy mixed with sorrow. We still sin and it grieves us. We see others we love sin and it grieves us. It grieves God. We hurt people through our sins. We should grieve over these things. We suffer and it hurts. We see others suffering and we are in sorrow. But it's always mixed with joy, exuberant, overwhelming joy because we have hope. We have hope because our bridegroom is always with us. Our joy is one of the defining marks of us as Christians. Everyone in the world has joy that ebbs and flows. Joyful on Friday, not joyful on Monday. Joyful on payday, not joyful when payday checks run out. Joyful when things go our way, but not joyful when things don't go. Joyful when our team wins, but not joyful when our team loses. Everyone has that. So that doesn't make us distinct when we have the same joy everyone has. But because our joy is rooted in our bridegroom and he's with us always, we have this transcendent joy that cannot be taken away. It does not ebb and flow based on what's happening to us. And it's not rooted in things that we're worshiping that are idols. It's rooted in Jesus so that we can be joyful on payday. But it's not because of payday. It's because our Father has provided again. And we're joyful in the provision of our Father, not just having more money in the bank to be selfish with or hoard up. To not be experiencing this kind of joy should cause us to take a somber look at ourselves. We're, why we're not experiencing this joy that Jesus came to give that no one can take away because He's always with us. And the only reason you might be here uh, this morning and not experiencing the joy of your salvation might be because you don't really have the bridegroom. You're just religious. You could sit on a church pew and sing some songs and be a member of a church. None of that makes you a Christian. Religious people are never joyful, truly joyful. They can be happy when they're succeeding at their religion, but to be deeply exuberant, godly joy, to have that comes through the presence of Jesus alone. And so for some here today, your first step towards that kind of joy might be to get married to Jesus, for Him to become your bridegroom, for Jesus to move in and make you a new person. But for most of us, who are alive in Christ, one of the great joy stealers in our life is disobedience and sin. When we are chasing sin and we're not walking in repentance, we're not going to experience joy but grief. Our consciences are not clear. We're afraid to be known because someone will find out that I'm hiding something and think less of me. We won't be bold. We'll be timid and insecure because we're living as though the good news isn't really good news, but we're living under our self-condemnation and self-guilt. Repentance and obedience bring joy because we have a clear conscience again. We have nothing to hide. It doesn't mean I'm perfect and sinless, but it means I know how sinful I am and I know how much I need Jesus and I'm running to Him constantly because of how broken I know I truly am. And there's boldness and joy in that. As I'm feasting on His Word and I'm engaging with Him in prayer, I'm experiencing the joy of my salvation. I'm loving and serving others. I'm giving away my life For the good of others, there's joy in those things. Tim Keller puts it like this, Joy is the buoyancy that results from the enjoyment of the unchanging privileges we have in God. Let me read that again. Joy is the buoyancy that results from the enjoyment of the unchanging privileges we have in God. A buoyancy, buoy, like a floater when you go fishing. 
a bobber, can't be sunk unless you get water in it. But normally it can't be sunk. It just pops up and down on top of that water until a fish grabs it. Then, it. then it sinks, and then you pull it up. But by itself, it just would bob and bob and bob forever. We all have junk in our life that threaten to sink us. But our privileges we have because of God, the presence and reality of Jesus in our lives, give us joy and delight that is not sunk by the garbage we have to deal with. So I urge you, my brothers and sisters, I exhort you, exhort you today, turn from your sins. See the presence and reality and beauty of Jesus and let Him restore to you the joy of your salvation. He's here. He's never left you and He wants to fill you with Himself and His joy. Be captivated again by the bridegroom as He fills you with Himself. And then quickly, Jesus finishes off this conversation with His first two parables, beginning in verse 21. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise a new patch pulls away from the old cloth and a worse tear is made. And no one puts a new wine into an old wine skin, otherwise the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost as well as the skins. So no new, no new wine is put into fresh wine skins. Again, this makes perfect sense to those in the first century. If you have an old garment with a hole in it and you patch it with a piece of cloth that hasn't been shrunk already, then the next time you wash the garment, the patch will shrink and tear away from the old garment and create a bigger hole. Or if you have wine skin made from the skin of sheep, if you take old wine skin that's been used and used and has become frail and brittle and you fill it with new wine, if you fill it with new wine, then when the new wine begins to ferment, so this is, this is real wines, this is not a Baptist version of the Bible, this is not grape juice, this is real wine. As it ferments, gases are produced, carbon dioxide, it's like the holes, the little pockets of air made in bread that expands that dough, same kind of uh, carbon dioxide, it makes... Uh, the wine pushes and pushes on the wine skin like air in a balloon, and the old, frail, brittle wine skin will bust because it can't handle the new wine that needs to ferment. The point is obvious. You can't combine the new with the old. The new will destroy the old. Jesus did not come to adapt himself to the religion of the first century Judaizers. You people are asking me this question. You're trying to figure out how I fit in compared to John's disciples or the Pharisees. And I'm here to tell you, I'm like nothing you've ever seen. I'm creating my own definitions. You can't put me in a box. I'm bringing something new. That was the significance of his first miracle, being that he was creating wine from water, something that only God could do, something brand new that tastes amazing. That's the significance. This kingdom I'm coming to bring is nothing like you've ever seen. Jesus is going to increasingly come face-to-face -face with the religion of his day, and increasingly show that what he's come to do and bring is the exact opposite of religion. Whether that religion is Judaism where you justify and prove yourself by your obedience to the Old Testament commands, or whether that religion is any other man-made and created system of justifying yourself, the gospel is something totally new and completely different. All other religions other than the gospel of Jesus Christ is man's attempt to get God or to prove himself or justify himself. Hinduism, Islam, Buddhism, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, Atheism, Environmentalism, Namanism. It's all man working to prove himself. It's Rocky Balboa telling Adrian before he fights Apollo Creed for the first time that he simply wants to go the distance, go the 15 rounds. I just want to finish the fight. Why? So he will know I'm not just another bum from the neighborhood. Rocky just wanted to prove he's not a bum. That's why he wanted to fight him. 
This is, the, this is religion. It's Harold Abrams, the sprinter in Chariots of Fire, saying he has 10 seconds to justify his existence. Every single person in this room, every single person in the world has a religion, and every single person is tempted to turn away from the gospel to religion. If I'm an amazing pastor, if I preach an amazing sermon today, if I'm an amazing father, or if I'm funny or smart or athletic, then I can by myself justify my existence to you. Because you think I'm amazing. I can justify my existence to myself, to God, to others. We're always working in religion to prove, look at me, I'm worth the oxygen that I'm taking up right now. I'm worth the space that I'm taking up in the universe. And the sad thing about religion is, you never know if you've done enough. Ever. And the gospel radically says, it's not enough. You'll never do enough. You're still broken and flawed and fall short of God's standard. But Jesus did enough. We stand in Him. He accomplishes what we fail at. He finished what we could never start and come close to finishing. Jesus came and did everything necessary for us to be justified in the eyes of God. Jesus did everything perfectly and it's through Jesus we have life and justification. Through Jesus we have meaning and value and purpose. Through Jesus we have access to God. Through Jesus we have life, but it's got to be through Jesus. Jesus did not come to tweak your life. He did not come so you could add Him to your life, your messed up life where it's convenient for you. He didn't come so you could add Him to the old things you're already doing. He is a king. He is a lion. You go home from church today and you find an adult, grown, full male lion from Africa sitting in your living room? It's not oh well, we'll just kind of do what we were already planning to do. Your day has changed. You're adjusting everything now to him. He's setting the course of the rest of your day. What or how did this happen? What are we going to do? This is Jesus. He comes in and takes over. You don't even have life, spiritual life, until he makes you alive. And the life he gives us is radically new, radically different. It doesn't mean we all have radical conversion stories where overnight we go from doing drugs to loving Jesus, especially if you were saved at three, but it does mean we go from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive in Christ. And over time, our lives are more and more reflective of His life, and we're radically changed by Him. So over time, we do look radically different from how we used to be, and we do look radically different from the world that is still under the sway of the enemy. We stick out. We are distinct. Because this is, this is new. Nothing like this has ever come on the face of the earth, the gospel and the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We should be weird in a good way. Not weird in some of the weird Jesus ways you see out there, like the church that holds up signs of who God hates and who God's sending to hell. Not, that's weird too, but that's weird in the wrong way. This is weird in a good way. One of my favorite movies and stories is uh, Les Mis, Les Miserables, the, the, the play by Victor Hugo. If you know the story, if you've seen the play, read the book, watched the movie, you know it's primarily about a character named Jean Valjean. Imprisoned for stealing bread to feed his family. He eventually gets out of prison. He struggles to find work because of the stigma of being a prisoner back in the 1800s, France. Ends up working for a bishop or a pastor, living with and working for a bishop, a pastor. And then one day he gives into the temptation, gives into the temptation to steal again. So he steals some silverware. He runs away. He's going to sell it and start a new life. The police 
catching him. They bring him back to the bishop. He's standing basically on trial before the bishop. And all the bishop has to do is say, yes, this prisoner stole my silverware, take him off back to prison, his miserable existence. But the bishop, the pastor, does something unexpected. He begins to look around the house and say, look, you forgot the candlesticks. Look, you forgot this silverware. Look, you forgot this valuable treasure. Making it seem as though he had given those things away to Jean Valjean. And the police have to leave because he's no longer condemned. And he's set free by this undeserved act of grace and mercy, even though he deserved condemnation and punishment. And if you know the story, Lemiz, you know this act of undeserved favor never, ever left him. All the way until his dying breath, it completely transformed him, changed the way he lived life, made him a new person. Jesus is our bridegroom and delights over us and has come to give us life and joy and lives inside of us to make all that possible and for us to live as no one else on earth can live because we have Jesus. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for all he did to make us this kind of people. And I pray for everyone here, everyone who's a part of Alds Church and the Crossing Church. Jesus, we want to experience this more and more and more. We want the city of Monroe and West Monroe and Washtenaw Parish and Downsville and Union Parish. We want, we want all the people that we live life with, we live by, work with, and our families to see the difference that Jesus makes. This is something new and unique and distinct. Nothing like anything else in the world can provide. Do this, Father, because you love us, you're with us, and you've done everything necessary to make this happen. I pray for anyone here today who maybe is holding on to religion and not trusting in Jesus for their justification and and their rightness before God, that you would reveal that to them and allow them to turn away from that sin and trust in Jesus and believe and come alive in him today. May today be the day of their salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.